Why don't we pray again uh, as we're about to jump into this passage uh, from Luke. It's actually Jesus' first visit, uh, uh, entry into the temple. Um, just want to give you a little warning that I kind of modified my message uh, and when I, as the thought process has happened. So we're not addressing the whole passage this morning. Uh, we'll get to the rest of it next week, but, you know, that's my prerogative as the person doing this, so that's what I've done. Hey, loving God, we thank you that we can dive into your word, uh, that you have recorded uh, the life of Jesus for us uh, so that we can have, as Luke says, so we can have this certainty uh, of our faith, um, that it's a saving faith and the reasons why it's a saving faith. And this morning we're, we're fossicking around in these early stages of the life of Jesus and looking at all that he did, all that he accomplished, that we might have salvation and be back in relationship with you. We pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would help us see truth, would help us get rid of any uh, prejudices or or preconceived ideas that we may have uh, around your word and just allow us to hear the beauty of it and the grace of it and the truth of it as it it creates and presents a picture of you and our relationship with you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. um, You know, one of the things as parents, uh, one of the main tasks, if you like, or perhaps one of the main desires uh, that we have as parents is, is hopefully, you know, to raise our kids well. Uh, even before they're born, uh, even before they come into our lives, you know, we're out buying, uh, we're buying books, experts written by people who don't even know your kid. Uh, but they're telling you how to raise your kid. Uh, they've never met them, but, you know, we're out there buying those books uh, to get their expert opinions on, on it. Uh, we're absorbing as much intel as we can uh, so that our, these little bundles of joy, when they come into our lives, have got the best kind of crack at life that we can provide for them. You know, we, we set up their rooms, uh, you know, little baby rooms to be a, a sensory wonderland uh, so that the developmental pathways of, of our kids are all lit up, all engaged at age-appropriate times, you know. If this kind of thing, I, I know that if this kind of thing is left up to dads, if it's up to them uh, to, to be organising these sort of rooms, they put them in advanced mode so the kids kind of advanced all the time and progressive and be able to compare them to our other kids. And so they, on Facebook a little later on, there's a picture of little Johnny and, and Dad's like, hey, look, you know, a finger painting already and there's a picture of little Johnny, got a little black beret on, holding up a nappy and he's just kind of, you know, landscape, earthy tones on, on the wall there kind of thing. So that's kind of great. We're making sure that the Carlton theme song is, is, is woven into dispersed at a kind of a one and four sort of rotation on the playlist uh, that's built into a baby monitor that feeds a live stream uh, to your device, whatever you've got, that updates you on the breathing, that updates you on the body temperature, that updates you on the nappy environment, all this kind of stuff. We go to great lengths to make sure our kids have all they need to thrive as we should. And it's a good thing to do. Our kids should get to hear the Carlton theme song. If they're Essendon supporters, they would have got to hear it last night. Bless their little souls. But as I thought about all of this, all that we do uh, as parents to make sure our kids grow up sound, to make sure our kids grow up well and that they thrived, I couldn't help but notice as we've been reading through the, the birth and the infancy narratives of Jesus that he got none of this. Born into poverty, as Luke describes it. Born with absolutely no special privilege 
at all. There's no red carpet pathway, no, no enrollment at the best schools or whatever provided around Jesus as he comes into this world. His parents couldn't even provide him a protection from the elements when he's born. He's, he's born exposed to all the elements in an in a, in a animal shelter, laid to rest in a feed trough. Uh, not a single hint of comfort, not a single hint of security, not a single scrap of privilege in Jesus. However, the one thing that he did have, the one thing that doesn't cost a cent, was that he had godly parents. Parents that loved God with all their hearts, with all their minds, and all their strengths. And it was into that environment that God uh, placed the most precious child ever to be born. It was into that environment that the long-awaited promise of God to bring comfort to the human condition first dwelt. It's into their care that God entrusts the frail child Jesus into their care that the Christ who is Lord uh, first came you know as parents the most valuable and the most uh, sensory enlivening soul securing thing that you can do for your kids is to be moms and dads uh, who, who just love God and who live lives that show that they are loved by God and that's literally all that Jesus got a mum and dad who loved the Lord and organized their whole home, their whole environment around that reality, around their love for him and his love for them. Luke tells us here in this passage this morning, in, on at least five occasions, that Mary and Joseph did something in accordance with the law for their son. Uh, we see it in verse 22, 23, 24, 27, and verse 29. Their love of God's measures towards them, their love of God's law in particular, that he had put in place that guides them to live appropriately with God, that guides them to live appropriately with each other, in ways to take care of each other, to look after each other, controlled all their life and practice. Luke Luke emphasizes for us here the piety of Mary and Joseph as people who lived according to the law and because of their love for God. And they knew that it was through the law of God that God uh, cared for them and loved them. The first thing we see them doing here in our passage this morning is that on the eighth day, Jesus is brought into the covenant people of God, uh, the ritual of circumcision. Cutting the flesh, the shedding of blood identifies Jesus uh, with with people, the covenant people who continued uh, to acknowledge that only under God's provision uh, can, do they escape from the penalty of sin? Can they deal with the penalty of sin? Uh, it established and marks Jesus as a true son of Abraham, a true Israelite, a, a, a real person in the flesh who now legally identifies with God's people. The ritual, though, is almost incidental to Luke. Uh, as, as he actually focuses on the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph in this instant, as they give their son the name uh, that God had given him. It's not a name from their family lineage, but it's the name that God had given them, a name that identifies with the promises and, and all the prophecies that are attached to their son uh, from God and about him. In naming their child Jesus, they demonstrate uh, a surrendered faith and trust to the promises of 
God. The promises of God past and all that's been said and the promises of God that are now being said and emerging around their child Jesus. Jesus wasn't uh, a name in their family. It was, a, it was a trendy name, but it was the name that God had given them. And so they, they in faith, hand this name over to their son. The name means the Lord saves. And up until this point, uh, people are saved by how they appropriate the law into their hearts. And what Luke doesn't want us to miss here is that amongst all this commitment to the law, here comes, here emerges the law fulfiller, the one who will become our personal salvation. How we appropriate Jesus into our hearts Uh, will either bring life and peace or leave us under death and the insecurity of human effort. You know, there's a five-week gap between this moment and and as they approach the temple there in between verses 21 and 22. But the same devout parents are ensuring that Jesus is raised in a home that honors uh, the Jewish tradition, that honors the Jewish faith and its practices, which is something that later on in the life of Jesus, uh, the religious leaders are going to try and discredit in Jesus's life, that he is someone who, who, who has, you know, questionable upbringing, that, 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 and that's why he has no regard for their law and their customs. He's a questionable Jew. The journey of Jesus' parents to the temple combines three separate ceremonies that are recorded in God's law, three separate ceremonies that they actually uh, partake in. These laws and and all these ceremonies, they address uh, social, both social and um, spiritual uh, elements of the lives of God's people. Uh, The ceremonies and the law is both a practical um, thing and it's also a, a theological thing, but they're all relational the first um, ceremony, the first ritual uh, thing that we find Jesus' parents going through is uh, the ritual of purification for a woman uh, that takes place 40 days after the birth of a male child. We read about it in Leviticus 12. Now, for the modern mind, the idea that childbirth uh, makes you contagiously, contagiously uh, and ritually unclean, uh, hence the need for purification, is a bit confronting, seems a bit crude, uh, could even be seen as demeaning towards women and demeaning towards childbirth. But nothing is further for the truth. And note that in Luke's account, Jesus uh, Jesus is there, but Joseph himself is included in uh, this rite of purification. He needs purification just as much. So we should note that, too, that this is a, a ritual un. Cleanness. It's not a moral uncleanness. There's nothing immoral associated with childbirth. In fact, it's, it was held with high regard in Scripture. And sex is seen as a profound gift that, that celebrates the, the covenantal intimacy of marriage, uh, the bearing of children seen as a profound and great blessing. So there's nothing immoral, sinful about this at all. But the ritual of impurity comes about from contact uh, with certain uh, prescribed substances or objects. In this case, a discharge of blood from wounds, hemorrhaging, uh, that kind of thing, uh, pretty common when someone's giving birth. And trust me, I've been there. It, it, was, it was brutal. I had to take a chair. It was taxing, uh, that kind of thing. 
But at a practical level, uh, what we see in these laws is also some practical things. That God has written a law that actually takes care of women after childbirth. For seven days, they are completely isolated. And then for the next 33 days, there's this limited isolation. We're getting used to what isolation and limited isolation looks like in our own context. But practically, this enshrines a time of recovery, a time of rest, a time of bonding with their children that wouldn't have been afforded to them without this law. Who would have thought that God writes into his law to humanity maternity leave and he enshrines it into the life of Israel it's also practical hygienically it helps prevent infections and various fevers at the time that were a great threat to mothers during and after childbirth God has also written postnatal care into his law God's law reveals his heart to care for the vulnerable and is hardly uh, a less uh, or more vulnerable condition than childbirth Theologically, it's a bit more complex. There are obvious reasons for why coming into contact with certain substances and certain objects makes you contagiously, ritually unclean. Blood, because of its sacredness, of its connection with life and death, fluids and emissions, uh, because of potential for disease and contamination. Objects and, and, and people that have been involved in idolatrous practices, all obvious reasons for why you might become ritually unclean. Mostly these regulations are there to, to continuously remind people that the effects of sin are all pervasive and that sin-prone prone people who live in, in sin-prone world need to be very thoughtful, need to be very self-aware when approaching God in worship. It's not something that's done casually. It's not something uh, that we should be flipping about. It's done under examination. It's done under examination of our lives, uh, upon reflection of our lives. That's what these laws are there to aid us to do. And we would do well to be reminded about this by Luke as he records how thoughtful uh, Mary and Joseph were about their own lives as they began to approach the temple to worship God and give thanks to him. With respect to childbirth, we have to speculate a little bit more as we attempt to explain the direct connections with these regulations. In the law of ancient Israel, blood had a sacred uh, associations. It was understood that the life of a being was in their blood. And since childbirth was associated with blood, it makes sense that these laws would pertain to to these things at childbirth. But I like the work that John Hartley has done around uh, the questions in this, that even though uh, every birth of a child is a celebrated and, and wonderful occasion, here's what it does. It challenges the verdict of deserved death that sin brought into the world. You see, sin should have should have seen the end of humanity. But every birth ensures the continuation of the human race. At childbirth, there is life. There's ongoing life. But, but it comes within trauma uh, to the woman, which reminds us of the curse of sin. The condition of ritual impurity serves to remind us that we are not our own saviors, ensures that we don't uh, exalt uh, the life-producing agency of women as a divine accomplishment of something we do in our own achievements. Childbirth is God's continued grace. But the trauma attached to it reminds us that sin is ever-present, even in this blessed event. 
What purification represents is the entrance back into all the practices of Jewish faith and the sacrifices attached to that remind new mums and dads that even in the miracle of childbirth, of new life, sin still reigns. And we need God's uh, provision to deal with it. Again, Luke doesn't want us to miss that it was for this very reason, the great irony, it's for this very reason that Jesus has come into the world. Secondly, uh, they're there for the presentation of the firstborn to God. And we get that out of Exodus and Numbers. Uh, this, this requirement of the presentation and the redemption of the firstborn was instituted after the Exodus, after Israel was Exodus from Egypt. And it was to be kept as a permanent reminder that their freedom from slavery and their relationship with God came through God's uh, redemptive provision, of God's substitutionary provision. The fact that it had to be repeated, uh, each new generation, that it wasn't a one-off thing, was a reminder of what God was yet to finally and fully do. Liberate his people, not merely from slavery to Egypt, but, but from slavery to sin, from, from slavery that all, uh, that causes chaos and death, uh, within the human condition. And again, here's Jesus moving into this world of of chaos included in the presentation is the dedication of the firstborn in to the service of the lord and this almost seems redundant given all the angelic and prophetic commentary around jesus birth but it highlights the character of mary and joseph that they acknowledge god's sovereignty that even in their poverty which is underscored by the type of sacrifice uh, that they give uh, you know they offer a pair of turtle doves Pigeons. I don't think there was a partridge in a pear tree, but uh, that's okay. But they, they are devoted parents committed uh, to raising their child, to raising Jesus in accordance with God's design, in accordance with God's law. That, that's, that's the big picture uh, that we've got here in this uh, moment. Verse 39 stamps an exclamation mark on, on all of this by saying, And when they had performed everything in accordance with the law of the Lord, then they returned to Galilee, to the town of Nazareth. You know, Luke's the only gospel writer to give us the, the detailed record of Jesus' infancy, uh, the detailed record of these strict adherences uh, to the requirements of the law. And I had originally just planned to whisk over this stuff uh, as quickly as possible and get to uh, Simeon and get to Anna where the real action is. Because let's be honest, a discussion about observations of law, about obedience to Old Testament laws and rituals, it, it seems to some people just like addressing a crude things. To the modern secular mind, it seems crude and, and, and that kind of stuff. To, to, to the grace-infused New Testament mind, uh, it, it, it seems irrelevant. Like none of this really matters to us now, Mason. Why are you making so much of this? Well, its relevance for us is found in Luke's objective for writing this gospel, for writing this orderly account of all the things, of all the things that were accomplished by Jesus for us so that we can have a rock-solid relationship, a rock-solid faith with God. One that, as we keep saying, one that's like a mountain range, one that's immovable, not one that's like a cloud that, that kind of evaporates and vanishes with the changing conditions. 
Faith that is a, a consolation, which is a word that we're going to look at next week, but a bit of a spoiler alert. A faith that is a comfort, a restoration and peace with God so that death holds no fear over us anymore. This is achieved not merely by Jesus' death on the cross. We burn a lot of time, and rightly so, looking at what Christ has done on the cross. But, but this faith, this, this consolation, this restoration back with God is done from all that Jesus did, from the manger to the tomb. The reason why we don't relate to God through rituals and symbolic practice and sacrifice anymore is because Jesus has satisfied and replaced them by perfectly following them, by perfectly obeying them. Even in the smallest dot and iota uh, of all the law, from his mother's womb to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus lived in complete and perfect obedience to the law. And even though he was the perfect son of God and already belonged to God, there was no need for any sacrifices or ritual to apply to him, no need of redemption for him. Jesus still undergoes all the requirements of the law. Jesus is afforded no shortcuts in life. Jesus gets no special privilege in life, no no easy ride because he just happens to know a guy who runs the whole thing. Jesus goes through all of life under the same conditions as every single person. From the very beginning to the very end of his life, he fulfilled all the righteousness that the law requires. And Jesus did it all from poverty, not privilege, all from weakness, not power. He had nothing at his disposal but some godly parents to assist him, to love him and to care for him. And that's why Paul can write in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5, about Jesus. When the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son forth, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Jesus has done everything required to satisfy God on your behalf. Jesus was consecrated to God as the law required. And then throughout the rest of his life, he lived in perfect obedience to that whole law and the whole will of God. And all that done, not, not, not so he could find favor, not for anything that he needed, but for our salvation. The only person to completely and perfectly love God so that he could then exchange that perfect life for your imperfect life life and change your position and condition before God we are saved by Jesus death on the cross for sure but we are also saved by his life on this earth in which he fulfilled all the righteousness of God the reason why Jesus can deal with your sin on a cross is because he has a perfect law satisfying life to offer as a substitute for your imperfect law condemned life Luke is pouring a spotlight over the whole life of Jesus so that when people like the Pharisees want to question the credentials of Jesus as the law keeper, as the wrath satisfier, or or maybe when we want to speculate or, or, or wonder if Jesus is really all he claimed to be, has he really done everything that needed to be done to bring us back into relationship with God? Luke says, yeah, he has. Look at the details. Look at everything I've written down here. So that when we question, how can we know with rock-solid confidence that Jesus has done everything? 
to bring us back to peace, to bring joy into our lives, to shift us from sin-deserving wrath to a righteously redeemed relationship with the Father. We find answers here in Luke's Gospel. Yes, he has. Yes, you can have certainty about the things that you have been taught. This moment in the temple is not incidental. It points to how Jesus is qualified to be your saviour. It speaks how he replaced uh, the hold that the requirements of the law have over people as a means to be approved to God, and he replaced them with himself. Here begins the story of grace through which God uh, said and begins to say to us, you know what, you can't, but I will. This is love, folks. This is a God of personal interest coming into our lives to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that's to meet the requirements of the law to set us free from the claim of sin and death over our life. Begins here in the temple. Started in the manger. And next week, and as we get into Luke, we're just going to see how that grows and grows and grows. Hey, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, for some of the just innocuous detail of your word. Who would have thought we could, we could, we could see your heart and, and see your commitment to us just in this little ritual moment in the temple. And we thank you uh, for, for men like Luke, led by your spirit, to write this down so that we can have uh, this certainty of faith around Jesus. Uh, We continue to to thank you for this as we get into Luke and and we see how this gospel uh, reassures our hearts that you have accomplished everything on our behalf. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.